Hey, happy, sad, confused listener. This week's episode is brought to you by our good old friends over at Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? Well, then this is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. Make sure to head to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as the launch pad, they landed on some equally cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With an exclusive Funko Pop and an exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is the loot you're looking for. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. You have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it, guys. I'm afraid it's over. So go to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on your new subscription today. One of our returning sponsors this week on Happy, Sad, Confused are our friends over at Level Up. Now you guys can showcase your geek chic style with Level Up, a monthly mystery apparel subscription from Loot Crate. You can get two different pairs of high-quality socks, one to two fashionable accessories, or a wearable item like a long sleeve shirt or lounge pants. Same themes as Loot Crate every month, and it serves as a great companion to your loot because there are no repeats. I repeat, no repeats. Each month's theme is inspired by all your favorite pop culture brands like Star Wars, Doctor Who, and Fallout 4, and often contain high-quality exclusives. So go to LootCrate.com slash SADCONFUSED to learn more. And remember to use the code SADCONFUSED to save 10%. By the way, this month's theme is Galaxy, with Star Wars items perfect for Jedi, Padawans, Rebels, and any serious fans of Star Wars. Get to it. Hey guys, welcome to the last Happy, Sad, Confused of 2015. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Josh Horowitz. This is my podcast, and we're ending the year with a big one. One of the most celebrated filmmakers of all time joins me on the podcast this week. The one and only, the visionary, the controversial, insert adjective here, Quentin Tarantino, direct, director of The Hateful Eight. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit and wrap up the year in film. Uh, before we go to the interview, Sammy, hello. Hello. We are uh, talking. We want to talk about a couple of quick things. So we want to talk about uh, The Hateful Eight, which is Quentin's new film, which uh, I'm a big fan of. It did not make my, my top ten, which I'm about to kind of go Ooh. through. But it was the, a tough list. It was, it was a tough list. Well, here was my, my caveat. I'm going to list out for, for those that haven't. Um, you know, a lot of people had asked me like, "What if I was going to come out with the top ten this year?" And I was, and I was like, eh, "It's because some years I do, some years I don't." Um, and I always debate about it because, like, it's a very, you know, I don't know. I I feel like my top ten today is different than my top ten next week and a week ago. So this is very kind of fluid. But because ha- you're you're a moody, emotional person, it's true. so it changes. <laughs> you can attest to that. Yeah. Um, so suffice <laughs> it to say, Hateful Eight came in at number thirteen on my list. I actually listed on uh, social media. I listed my top twenty. If you really care to dissect it in detail, and I don't really know why you would, but, but thank you for your interest. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but here is uh, in order from ten to one. 
my top 10 films of the year. Woo! Sammy, you can insert insert brief commentary wherever you wish. I intend to. Okay. Um, number 10. And I apologize, by the way. I don't know how sensitive these microphones are. I'm taping this intro in the office. And for some reason, someone is playing Natalie Imbruglia. Bru- do, do you do Imbrug or Imbruglia? Imbruglia. Imbruglia. Well, Josh, the thing is, a little backstory for everyone. Josh doesn't listen to music. Josh no, doesn't, I don't listen to music. No, like... A Dave Matthews band song was just playing, and he literally didn't know who it was. I have been to a Dave Matthews concert. Yeah, but you didn't know. Did you? Were you not listening? <laughs> I could not name one Dave Matthews song. Right. So actually. Josh is a, Josh doesn't listen to music. I'm very focused in my interests. Yeah. He only listens to his own podcast. Yes. yes. <laughs> the the music to. of my voice. All right. Um, number ten. Number, number 10. ten. Controversial. For me, Star Wars: The Force Awakens. Ooh. I've seen it four times now. I'm very. I have. I have major issues with the film, but I love the film. I'm torn apart, much like Natalie Imbruglia. <laughs> 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 we can spend an entire podcast talking about Star Wars, and maybe we will one day. But it comes in at number ten for me. Number nine. Uh, I loved Creed. Creed, the um, the continuation of the Rocky saga. Michael B. Jordan did a great job. Ryan Coogler directing. Sly Stallone getting a lot of Oscar buzz. I love this movie. I need to see it. As a Philly girl, I need to see it. You should definitely see you it. You actually had no business seeing it before me. <laughs> well, I did. Continue. Uh, <laughs> uh, at number eight, Anomalisa. Do you even know about this one? Have you heard about this no. one? A lot of people haven't. Uh, it's, it's a small film uh, co-directed by Charlie Kaufman. Charlie Kaufman, of course, known primarily as a screenwriter of being John Malkovich, an adaptation, um, directed Schenectady a few years back. Um, this is a stop motion, oh. um, really, um, it, it's, it's a very odd film, but a touching film. Um, Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, part of the voice cast, David Thewlis, um, Tom Noonan, this character actor who plays like a bunch of characters. Uh, it's a, a very kind of haunting film, uh, highly recommended. Uh, this one, I know we were just talking about this before we started the podcast today. At number seven, Room, starring mm-hmm. for previous podcast guest um, Brie Larson. Um, if you haven't heard about Room, check it out. This is a very um, exceptionally acted, well-directed film um, about a mother and son imprisoned. And, and I don't want to reveal too much, but um, it's, a, it's a really touching film. Uh, number six, this, is, this one I know I, I've gotten a lot of heat about, uh, Crimson Peak. I love Crimson Peak. I know a lot of people hated Crimson Peak or didn't even bother with it. Um, I just, I, I think this is, Quentin, not Quentin, this is uh, Guillermo del Toro's, one of his best films. You, I was just... It's in, just because you love, it's obviously... It's not about Tom. It's yes, about, it is. It's not, if, if anything, the standout performance for me is, is Chastain, Chastaniac. Well, that's your other number one. Well, so. I'm allowed to pick my favorite actors. And Guillermo, everyone knows how much you love but him. I will. You're just trying no, to No, 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 I will say Pacific Rim was not uh, near my top ten that year. I did not like Pacific Rim very much, so... Take it for what it's worth. I love this one. Uh, number five, Brooklyn. Another small, heartfelt film starring Sersha Ronan. I just like saying her name. <laughs> Is that really? Sersha Ronan. <laughs> I always said it like Swatters. No. Sersha Ronan. Swatters Ronan. Uh, she's amazing in it. Uh, about uh, a really touching immigrant story. Um, just like a small story. It's, you know, big explosions or anything like that. But it's, uh, a, again, exceptionally well-crafted and great performances. Uh, and my cold, dead heart was moved by it um number four uh we've heard a lot about this is a potential oscar winner for best picture uh spotlight everybody loves this film i'm no different um 
uh, amazing uh, true life story uh, about the investigation into the Catholic Church uh, abuses, Ooh. abuse scandal. A lot of fun, fun for the whole family. <laughs> but but uh, great performances. A good from Christmas Day viewing. An amazing ensemble: Michael Keaton, Mark Ruffalo, Rachel McAdams. Love this one. Number three, Sicario exceptionally well-crafted. I love the score. I love uh, Benicio Del Toro. I love all the three leads in this. Um, this is a, another haunting film that I'm really into. Uh, Denis Villeneuve is the director, and he's one to watch. Uh, number two, a lot of people didn't love this one. I did. Steve Jobs, Danny Boyle um, uh, kills this one. The screenplay, of course, by Aaron Sorkin. Michael Fassbender, uh, for my money, should win Best Actor. Um, if you haven't seen it, check out Steve Jobs. And number one, I've obsessed about it week after week. Mad Max Fury Road. No surprise if you've listened to this podcast. How many podcast. times did you see it? What was the final total? I think five in theaters once on my, my TV. Oh. So, you know, holding steady. I saw Hugh Jackman in The Boy From Oz more than that. <laughs> well, um, you've got larger issues than we can talk about here today. Um, anyway, that's my top ten. And uh, I don't want to spend much more time than that before we go right to the Quentin interview. Uh, we'll talk more next week. We'll get ahead to 2016. Uh, but for now, um, enjoy this conversation with Quentin Tarantino. Enjoy The Hateful Eight. I'm a big fan of this one. Uh, it is in theaters right now. Select theaters. See it if you can in um, 70 millimeter. It's playing in 44 cities around the country. Uh, and then I believe New Year's Day, it's out everywhere. A uh, big three-hour epic um, film that's full of that delicious Quentin Tarantino dialogue and great performances and um, everything you should, everything you love about Quentin Tarantino. A lot of blood splattered. A lot of blood splattered. Um, so, yeah, again, fun for the whole family this yeah, holiday season. Sweet. Uh, enjoy this great conversation with one of the masters of, uh, of, of film, filmmaking. Of uh, life. Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> oh, just, let's say, just say film. Okay. <laughs> uh, enjoy this. You are a man of your words, sir. Thank you for agreeing. Oh, to my pleasure. Well, I appreciate uh, uh, the support you've given us. It's been fun. It's been yeah. fun, man. Um, uh, and it's cool. We're off and off and rolling. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, sorry we're, about that. All good. Uh, things are falling apart in the office. <laughs> the good news is we have Quentin Tarantino here. Um, how's the press tour been treating you? Oh, really good, actually. It's uh, um, it's fun because it's like a, uh, um, as opposed to like the press chunk of day. Which can be kind of intense yeah. and stuff, and it's a long day, and you're uh, talking to a whole lot of people in little little bites and segments. Um, this is like more like uh, it's it's intense, and I'm a little tired right now. But uh, at the same time, they're um, uh, they're real conversations. Yeah, and the and the different ones have a, a different tone to them. Right, uh, and so it actually it's it's stimulating. This one, um, I've seen the uh, the roadshow version twice now, mm -hmm. and uh, it's exceptional. You, you, I think I've told you already, but I'm, a, I'm for the record, I'm a huge fan of this one as I'm all your work. But I feel like it's funny. Actually, I enjoyed it more the second time around, which mm -hmm. I think is is a, always a good sign for yeah, a film. Yeah, when you when you approach a film, whether from a screenplay or or a directing standpoint, are you thinking about repeated viewings? Are you thinking about um, how this is going to be returned to? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I am definitely coming from uh, an egotistical place that I actually think that most people will watch my movie uh, at, Study at the very least stuff. twice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if not three or four or five times, at least over the course of a long period oh, of time. Cool. We're not demanding within the course of a week. No, but... no, 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 no. I mean, I, 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 no, no problem with that. All right, you know. Uh, um, but at least maybe a couple of times, maybe during uh, 
the initial run, and then you know maybe if you like it every you know three years or so. Yeah. Um, but in, in particularly in this one, because um, there is this aspect of you know there's a mystery aspect going on, and so I do like the idea that there's there's that first viewing where it's a uh, you know it's about the surprises. And the reveals right. that are going to happen, and there's twists and there's turns, and there's always twists and turns in my movies. So in the um, you get that first screening out of the way where the plot is driving everything, and then after that, then you watch it a second time, and now you kind of know the plot, you've got that down, and now you can watch it in a different way. Yep. And now, especially in this one, now you you really watch it in a in in a different way because now you know now you're watching it with a whole different point of view. Now you know what some of the surprises and twists are. Well, and literal and in a literal fashion, you can be studying a different portion of the screen. I mean, obviously, as we know, you shot this in seventy millimeter, and the the framing of this lends itself to there's always something in the background and foreground that that. Mm -hmm. is contributing to the mystery and I feel like it plays out well to just sort of like focus oh wait what's what's he doing back there what's happening oh no no I mean that's uh, uh, that's almost like a um a visual motif in the movie yeah because there is this aspect that the characters are almost um like uh pieces on a chessboard yeah and uh, they're moving into place, and uh, they're being repositioned uh, as the uh, as as the game gets gets further, and uh, and, and this character is going to you know th this pawn is going to right. take out this bishop, uh, <laughs> and uh, and so there always is uh, to one degree or another, there is the foreground play that's in any given shot, which is the actors dealing with, uh, that are closer to the camera. But then there's always the background play Absolutely. going on. And unless I don't want you to know where the other characters are, the point of, of this story is that you always know where the other characters are in the room in relation to everybody else. It's, it's hard for me to pinpoint a favorite performance in this film. I, I, I truly love all of them. Um, one I'll mention, not necessarily as my favorite, but just it was a reminder to me watching this film how criminal it is that Samuel Jackson has not received an Oscar. Yes. I know. I agree. It's insane. I absolutely agree. <laughs> and, uh, uh, well, I'm uh, knocking my head right now, uh, hoping that uh, this might be the case. Well, I'm curious, like, how important has it been? He obviously has been with you almost from the start. When you when this career started to build build momentum, was it in your head that you wanted to create a bit of a some relationships that would continue a, a bit of a repertory kind of feel to the, the company that you would keep. I mean, is that something that you always knew would kind of develop? Or? Well, I, I, I kind of figured that that would end up being the case because, um, you know, you work with somebody, uh, you like them, uh, they, you have a sense of what they can do. They have a sense of what you can do and, uh, you just like them. So it's, you know, it's, it's easy to cast them and you, and it's always a fun little reunion yeah. whenever you get back together again. But also, you know, from, Watching directors' career uh, careers over the years and and really being uh, um, enamored with them, you know, almost all the directors that I really cared for had a a stock company of actors right. that they used again and again, and it's actually kind of fun to see you know the stars that they uh, that they had an affinity with and they yeah. worked with time and time again, and even the character actors yeah. that they really liked and showed up. I mean, like uh, just if you're a big Brian De Palma fan. 
there was this actor named J. Patrick McNamara, all right? And he would just show up in these little tiny roles right. in like so many De Palma films. Right. Dennis France, you know, way before NYPD Blue. He sure. was a De Palma Blow out, yeah, yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. Well, it's curious also that, like, I mean, in addition to, of course, the returning players, um, one I have to mention is Jennifer Jason Lee, who's yeah. extraordinary as Daisy in this. Um, I was so thrilled when it was announced that you would cast her because yeah. for anyone, you know, anyone that, that loves film, she's insanely talented from the start and and I mean it's a wonderful character actress I'm curious like what the algorithm is for you in terms of I mean a lot has been made over your career about reinventing reinvigorating you know mm-hmm. careers does that factor in it all in terms of when you're casting someone or is it simply what at the end of the day is who's fitting the, the role best or you know I mean maybe to one degree or another Maybe not as much as people uh, um, uh, emphasized in the 90s, but maybe in the first 10 years, that might have been on my mind just a little bit in maybe the John Travolta incident sure. or in particularly the Pam Greer yeah. uh, uh, situation. Um, and Robert Forster, though, for instance, I wasn't necessarily going out to reinvent his career. I just thought he was perfect casting right. for Max Cherry. And I was right. He was perfect casting. You can't imagine anybody else playing that role. Totally. Um, but as time has gone on, I uh, um, I don't think that way anymore. I am, it's all about my characters. Yeah. And I am literally just trying to find the best actor to play my character. And that really is the only consideration that I have. Now, if that perfect actor to play my character is a movie star, well, all the better. Of course, and yeah. I think I found a perfect actor to play Calvin Candy when I use Leonardo yep. in uh, Django. And same thing with Brad Pitt in yep. uh, uh, As Aldo Rain. In fact, I really can't imagine the movie without Brad Pitt, you know, to tell you the truth. Totally. And, um, and you know, but uh, I wasn't going out to make Christoph Waltz a star, Right. When I cast him as Colonel Londa, I was all about Londa. I had to find the right actor for Londa, and I did. Yeah. And then everything that's happened since is just, uh, I mean, it's incredibly gratifying. Couldn't happen to a better man, couldn't happen to a better actor, but that's just, uh, that just ended up coming with the territory. Is it, uh, is it at all true that, uh, you know, these lists are bandied about that Jennifer Lawrence was somebody you talked about for days? I did meet with her. Because, uh, well, I'm a big, big fan of hers. Of I mean, I think, um, I, I, I quoted in an interview once that I would say, you know, um, she has a quality that uh, reminds me a bit of uh, a young Betty Davis mm-hmm. to some degree or another. And I actually really do think that the work that her and David O. Russell are doing together is very reminiscent of uh, the collaboration between William Wyler sure. and Betty Davis. And, and that's a hell of a thing to say absolutely about uh, um, uh, two people. But I, I, I think uh, uh, they bear it out. Um, Would her Daisy have been that much different, you think? Well, I think whoever played Daisy, it would be very, very unique. If I cast the right person, would be very, very unique and, and different. There would yeah. be no... Daisy was very open for an actress to invest in. There is this... Uh, as specific as she is, it's meant to be interpreted. Right. And so there is this idea of casting the right actress in the role and having her show me this character. And me and Jennifer, and I'll get back to the Jennifer thing, uh, Jennifer Lawrence thing in just two seconds. Um, But me and Jennifer talked about it. And I go, I really don't want you to uh, presuppose this character. 
I don't want you to think about results as far as this character is concerned. I want you to just give yourself over to her. And the most important thing is don't make her an other. You need to become her and do not judge her. Just become her. And then me and you can create her together day by day, right. week by week, scene by scene. And she was committed to that. And she loved that idea. And that's what we did. And there, there, you know, there'd be uh, no way to do like the last sequence in the movie anytime earlier than the end of the film. Right. Because that you had to almost, she almost had to live through the movie and live through the character to be at the right spot to do that last sequence. But in the idea of Jennifer Lawrence playing the character, you know, I'm a big fan of hers. And I could absolutely see a world yeah. where she was playing Daisy. So we got together and 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 we talked. And ultimately she you know it just it wasn't gonna work out. She you know Hunger Games and Joy <laughs> and all this thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The busiest woman in the in the darn world. All right. Uh, she was just actually frankly, I think just being nice meeting with me. All right. Um I think she was just being respectful, frankly, to tell you the truth. Um which well, I was polite. I was very happy about all that. <laughs> uh, um but uh but at, uh, uh as I went further on the idea, I realized that I thought Daisy should be older. Um, there was this kind of, um, this is kind of a throwback to the 90s mm -hmm. in this whole movie. I mean, most of the actors are kind of actors from the 90s, and I'm from the 90s. And, right. and I thought, well, the actress should be an actress from the 90s. And one of the things, you know, uh, about Jennifer Jason Lee's career in the 90s in particular was she was kind of thought of by all of us as a female Sean Penn. Yep. Well, and that's, that's kind of what I needed for Daisy. I needed a female Sean Penn. And I needed a female Sean Penn to uh, throw her weight around, you know, with these ugly mugs right. that I have in this movie. And, um, and that's what I got. And I, I, I couldn't be happier with it. Do, do you think, uh, this is not a new observation, but I'm curious. I mean, you, I know you read a lot of film criticism. You, you obviously... Um, this probably has occurred to you, but it seems to me like revenge is, if there's one theme that resonates mm -hmm. through all of your films, mm -hmm. it is revenge. Is mm -hmm. that safe to say? Is that something that... I think people have made a little bit more hay out of that than uh, uh, is the case. I mean, um, like there is a revenge motif or ambiance to... Um, to Django, but his mission isn't that of revenge. It's so that of that, rescue. Yeah, let's get, get his woman. Yeah. Now, revenge ends up happening. <laughs> it's a consequence of the, the journey. He's trying to he's trying to just save her. If 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 what happens in the drawing room didn't happen, then right. they would he'd have the bill of sale of Brumhilda right. and they'd get out and that would be that. Right. <laughs> Is um do you, in looking at the career, do you feel like you've evolved more as a writer or a director? Like, what do you, what, what do you, where do you see your own evolution in terms of that? Well, I think uh, uh, as as far as like working with my talent, I think I've I've evolved in both. Yeah. In both cases, however, I will say that, uh, and I actually, and oddly enough, I actually think um, this movie highlights it. I think more than the others. I mean, there is a. Um, there is an ease to the blocking and the staging in this movie where and where the actually the blocking and the staging is probably far more important yeah than in maybe most of the movies before and uh and there was kind of an ease to it that i don't think would have been there 
uh, you know, years and years earlier that actually really just showed, oh, wow, I'm just, you know, uh, I wasn't thinking about that. I just kind of knew, knew how to do it. But I do think that there is an aspect of me um, taking my writing uh, much more seriously. I think ever since Kill Bill, there's been a veer towards the literary yeah. when it comes to my work. Maybe possibly to uh, the detriment uh, as far as some people are concerned. But I, I do think uh, uh, there is more of a... Uh, I, I take my writing very, very seriously now in, in a way that maybe I, I, I took it seriously, but now I take it more seriously than I did before. Well, was there a shift at some point in terms of thinking about... Because in hearing you talk, I know... It sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you value the body of work, what you are leaving behind, this 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 film legacy. No, the filmography is it's the it. most important thing. The, yeah. Absolutely, the end all. Time for a quick message from our friends over at Loot Crate. Would you classify yourself as a geek, gamer, or pop culture nerd? If you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing yes. Well, then this is the subscription box for you. For less than $20 a month, you guys can get six to eight items of gamer and pop culture licensed gear, apparel, collectibles, unique one-of-a-kind items, and more. So make sure to head to LootCrate.com happy and enter the code happy to save $3 on any new subscription. Not that long ago, and depending on where you live not so far away, Loot Crate blasted off into a voyage across the galaxy, searching the far reaches of space to find universally awesome gear. Using December's Star Wars The Force Awakens loot as the launch pad, they landed on some cosmic items from Halo 5 and more. With an exclusive Funko Pop and exclusive shirt in this month's crate, this is truly the loot you're looking for. Get it, Star Wars reference. Basically, Loot Crate is like a friend who knows what you love and surprises you with an awesome present every month. Remember, you have until the 19th at 9 p.m. Pacific to subscribe and receive that month's crate. And when the cutoff happens, that's it, guys. I'm afraid it's over. So go to lootcrate.com slash happy and enter code happy to save $3 on your new subscription today. Time for a quick message this week from our friends over at Level Up. As you guys know, you can always showcase your geek chic style with Level Up, a monthly mystery apparel service from Loot Crate. This is a subscription service, much like Loot Crate, but focusing on apparel, and it's awesome, guys. You can get two different pairs of high-quality socks, one to two fashionable accessories, or a wearable item like a long-sleeve shirt or lounge pants. Same themes as Loot Crate every month, and it serves as a great companion to your loot because there are no repeats. Each month's theme is inspired by all of your favorite pop culture brands like Star Wars and Doctor Who and Fallout 4, and they often contain very high-quality exclusives. So go to LootCrate.com slash SADCONFUSED to learn more, and remember to use our code SADCONFUSED to save 10%. This month's theme, by the way, it's Galaxy. Star Wars items perfect for Jedi, Padawans, Rebels, and any serious fan of Star Wars. I'm curious, like, as you and you've talked, you know, a lot about potentially it being 10, we'll see, give or take, mm-hmm. you know, when all is said and done. At what point into the film career were you thinking, you know, I could actually do 10 for 10. Like, I could actually, like, I could do it without making a misstep and maybe this is the philosophy to go to go with. I think um, sometime around in Glorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever had those thoughts before. And what, what was the, like, what precipitated it? Um... I think the idea was just about the idea that I was uh, uh, I was getting older, um, getting into that tenth year, uh, or a little bit more than that uh, 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 in the career, and just looking at the track record and 
And well, and you know, but actually, that's a really good question. Uh, no one's actually po- everyone like why, why, why? No one's posed the question the way you've posed it. And, uh, uh, congrats. Um, uh, also, there is a big thing is um, in the last uh, five, six years. Uh, in between films, I've done uh, a tremendous amount of um, study yeah. on films. And I always have, but I've been doing even more in between films. It's what I do, all right, uh, to uh, clear the palette, so to speak, and kind of figure out what my next things are going to be. And um, and I do study on, 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 on careers, and I do study on uh, filmographies and... and uh, and you start to see the patterns of and I see records, and I see where you know directors go astray yeah. or when um, you know the creative mojo is there for a while and then we see the spigot start to dry up a little bit yep. or it, it's not flowing the way it was and you know there is that time where there is just an excitement around a director or a musician or a novelist or, or any kind of artist where they're they're at a certain place and their new work is exciting. Yeah. And it's an event. And uh and you keep coming for that. And then there's it when it stops being less exciting and where it's just not as an event anymore. And they're not quite working with the same amount of passion or the same amount of drive as they had before. I mean, one of the directors that managed to overcome it to quite a degree, um, was Stanley Kubrick, but the way he overcame it was by not making a movie. Very deliberate, to say the least. You know, every seven years, all right? Well, but that goes a long way of why he didn't burn out. Yeah. He lived a life and he uh, uh, devoted uh, uh, years into pre-production and then however long it took to make the film. And so each movie was a big, he wasn't, was a big deal and it was an artistic achievement that whether you accepted it or rejected it, uh, uh, that it it was what it was. And it it wasn't just making a movie because he didn't know how to do anything else. Right. Is it, is it, do you then cease the careers of, of folks in recent years where, you know, uh, you know, I would cite someone like George Miller this year. I would cite, you know, Woody Allen, who's on and off, but has mm-hmm. had some real successes in recent years, mm-hmm. uh, Scorsese, Wolf of Wall Street, et cetera. Are they just random anomalies? Or are they just that they have somehow evaded these? Well, here's the thing. I mean, I'm in the, you know, uh, I mean, like, in particularly when you're talking about uh, George Miller's achievement with Mad Max Fury Road. That really, You're a fan. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that. <laughs> and it took me a long time to see it because I was against the idea of uh, what's the point of a Mad Max movie without Mel Gibson? Right. I mean, in a world where Mel Gibson exists, uh, what the hell is Tom Hardy doing in the goddamn movie? <laughs> right. You know? Um, and, uh, and, I, uh, and also there was even the whole idea of... of I mean, that's what I want to see is, you know, Mel Gibson, you know, 30 years later in this post-apocalyptic wasteland surviving during this entire time. That's what I want to see. Having said that, and I, yeah, I mean, to me, there would be literally as, and then I don't quite feel the way, but I, I felt strongly about this. It's like, you know, if John Carpenter was doing a new Escape from New York and felt he could do it without Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken, I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> not interested. I'm with you. You know, Gerard Butler is not the same. 
Having said that, um, the movie was an incredible achievement, and I actually thought Tom Hardy did a really terrific job. Yeah. It helped that Charlize Theron is the real star of the movie. Amazing, and she was amazing. But I actually, but I'm not, I'm not giving a backhanded uh, 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 diss to Tom Hardy. I actually thought he was actually quite iconic in the film. I would have liked it better if he wasn't Max Rodowski. Right. I would have liked it better if he oh, was the feral child having yeah. grown up. Uh, yeah, I, it's funny you say that. I mean, I actually, my take was, I I love the movie. I've seen it five times in the theaters. And I, I've with seen it. it, I saw it three times in a week and when I finally <laughs> broke my, my protest, I, I got a print of the movie and I watched it at my house and I got it on a Friday so I had it all weekend long. I watched it three times before right. I gave that print back in a weekend. I will still say, and I do love Tom Hardy, I want to see that exact same movie with Mel Gibson just playing that role. I, that's that's in my mind's eye. I mean, that's almost, I, I mean, that's almost too great to imagine. I, know, exactly. I mean, it really is too great to imagine. I know. Um, <laughs> when you look at something like that or any film, I'm curious, like, are there skills that you that you acknowledge, like, okay, that's just not my skill set. I, I can do a lot of things better than virtually anybody. I can't do this kind of a film on the level that I would want to do it. No, I don't know about that. I mean, um, I like my car chases in uh, Death Proof. <laughs> I'm not even saying specifically about Mad Max. I'm just saying generally in other genres that you appreciate. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, um, uh, for instance, um, you know, I have a, a, a my own revival movie theater right. in, in Los Angeles called uh, The New Beverly on uh, La Brea and um, <laughs> Beverly Bowler. Um, and so uh, during October, I got a gorgeous print of uh, The Exorcist. And we showed it uh, every Saturday at midnight during the month of October. And actually, Freakin' doesn't allow film print. My, my, my thing about my theater is I only show 35 millimeters, sometimes 16, but no digital. Right. And he actually doesn't allow film prints to be shown of The Exorcist. He only wants DCP. Oh, so I called him up personally mm -hmm. and asked him, and he, he allowed us. Uh, he gave Warner Brothers permission for me to uh, show The Exorcist on film. And so we showed it, and it was an amazing experience. I actually hadn't seen the movie in quite a while and it was killer, absolutely killer. And so good that I went and saw it like twice during uh, the month that it played, the four times at midnight. And um, and I sat there and watching it and, and I, you know, I imagined doing like a horror movie like that. And I even started reading some of the horror novels of the day to see, is there just one? Yeah. You know, wasn't made into a movie or was made into a movie, wasn't made well. I was like reading The Sentinel, all right? right. Uh, and to see, well, how does that as a book? Actually, the book's really horrible. <laughs> uh, I'm still reading it, but I still want to get to the end of it. But it's, <laughs> all right. Uh, but, uh, um, but I had to be honest with myself. And um, I could never make The Exorcist the way he made, made it because um, I don't think I could commit to that sober tone and that's what the film is it's that atmosphere yeah. that just lingers over that you and just washes lingering you. Yeah, yeah. it's one note yeah. one note but beautifully mm -hmm. one note atmosphere I, I i i would be forced i just could I, but that but i don't think anyone wants me to do that right. that would be me working at half speed right that would be me chain chained uh, to the floor to some degree or another. I mean, um, you know, as a, uh, uh, a student of Brian De Palma, I really, really, really appreciate Obsession. I think it's a very good movie. Right. But it is De Palma working 
as effective as a movie as it is, it is working with a with one hand tied behind its back because it doesn't have its humor. Yeah. And it doesn't have a satire. And to drain those aspects out of his film is to hamper De Palma. Right. Because he was actually one of our best satirists, even in, in his thrillers. And his comedy is very, very funny. And so for him to not work with from that point um, is not the best use of his talents. It feels like, uh, I haven't seen the new documentary about him, but like hopefully I feel like there's a new appreciation of De Palma I would, I coming would, back around. Oh, that, I would love that. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited. I mean, he was my man. All through the 80s of the movie Bratz, yeah. he was my dude. He yeah. was my guy. Have you ever spent time talking to him? Oh, no, yeah. 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 Uh, I, uh, in fact, it was, <laughs> frankly, um, one of the highest achievements I had ever achieved, actually. Uh, and it was like, oh, my goodness. This is actually uh, this is actually worth telling in a couple different uh, uh, sections. Go for it. Uh, to some degree or another. Um, I was such a fan of Brian De Palma. He was my director hero of the living directors currently working. And you need that if you want to be a filmmaker or if you love film. You need to have, you know, some director who is out there working at the highest points of their capabilities yep. uh, that is currently making movies. You have to have that those heroes that you can't wait <coughs> to see their new movie. And De Palma was my guy. And I saw, you know, I, I'd count down the days so the new movie opened. I'd collect all the reviews and put them in a little scrapbook. <laughs> People would see my scrapbooks and they go, oh, you can see little pictures of Quentin, you know, when he was younger. And they look at it. Body it's, just double like, and- it's just body double <laughs> reviews. All right. You know, uh-uh. <laughs> literally, that's what body double Amazing. reviews. Right? <laughs> and so um, I'd go and I'd see the new Brian De Palma movie, first show first day and no one could go with me. I had to just see it by myself. Then I saw it and I thought about it all day long and all night long and then I'd go see the midnight show that night. And then I could actually have friends with me by that point. And then I just, you know, see it periodically, you know, during the the rest of the run. So at least twice in Los Angeles, I remember going to see uh, at the Bruin in Westwood, uh, the early show, first show, first day, 1030 of Tucker, Coppola, great. Yeah, Coppola's yeah. movie. And uh, there's maybe three people in at the box office in front of me in line, and I'm waiting. And I look over my shoulder, and I see Brian De Palma lumber around the corner and then stand behind me to buy a ticket to see Tucker. Amazing. And I'm like, oh, my God, there's my hero. He's right behind me. And I thought about, I mean, there probably was no living artist that meant as much to me at that time. You know, um, you know, he was like my Bob Dylan, yeah. you know, and um, I decided not to talk to him. And the reason I decided not to talk to him is because he meant so much to me. There'd be no way I could express that in any kind of meaningful way in the 30 seconds right. that I would have had his attention. And I knew I would just be disappointed by the encounter. Well, and what you probably wanted was an exchange of ideas as opposed to... But like, he doesn't, he doesn't yeah, want that. He does, yeah, exactly. He's I mean, Tucker. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't need that. And so I would just be disappointed yeah, by sure. the encounter. And so I, I, I said, no. I'm not going to bug him. I'm not going to introduce myself or anything. Uh, I will meet him at some point uh, when I've actually done something. If I had made a movie, I would have 
talk to him, but I'm not going to talk to him as a video clerk. Right. Unless he walked into my video store, <laughs> yeah, which, you know, that happened once. Tom Savini walked in and I actually <laughs> talked to him. All right. Uh, uh, Frank Herbert walked into the video store and I talked to him. Amazing. Yeah, that was kind of cool, <laughs> frankly. Uh, and so, uh, um, so the thing about it was, uh, so I met Sundance and he was married to Galen Hurd at the time. And she produced a movie called Water Dance that was in the Sundance Festival the same oh, yeah. year as uh, Reservoir Dogs. Helen Mirren, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Helen Hunt. Yeah, yeah, Helen, Helen, Helen Hunt. Helen yeah, Hunt. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm going to go see Water Dance. And, you know, she made the movie and, you know, she's in the lobby. And um, she's talking with Larry Estes, who was a big, important guy uh, with RCA Columbia for independent uh, home video, independent films, actually, at that time. And uh, um, so I'm introduced to Gail Ann Hurd and was very happy to meet her. So I shake her hand, say hello. And I go to her, um, and she's, she hadn't seen Reservoir Dogs, but she heard of it. <clears throat> so I go, um, you know, I got to say, you're married to my hero. And she goes, oh, that's great. I, uh, I like being married to somebody's hero. <laughs> well, you are. But he's not going to like my movie. So just, you know, he shouldn't even see it. Why? Why wouldn't he like your movie? I go, because he's stated on, he's been on the record as saying he doesn't like movies of people talking to each other. And all my movie is, is people talking to each other. And she goes, Oh wow, you do know him. He doesn't like movies about people talking. To oh no, each that other. sounds horrible for him. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, and then Larry Estes was really cool. Like, oh no, but your your dialogue scenes are like action scenes. <laughs> so anyway, I think I impressed her, and so I went into the theater and watched the movie, and that was that. Well, then we made the movie with a company called Live Entertainment. Galen Hurd and Brian De Palma requested a print to screen the movie. And, and I didn't know this. And so they screened the movie and they watched it together. And then about a week later, I get this call that Brian De Palma and Gail Ann Hurd would like to meet me. And literally what I'm thinking at that line to go see Tucker is actually happening. And he's seen my movie. And he sought it out. And by the way, you know, Gail Ann Hurd is not chump change either. I totally. mean, she, it was like the year after she did Terminator 2. Right. <laughs> like Had a little heat is, on her, yeah. She is, you know, you know the woman. <laughs> uh, so you have the audience with the king. The yeah. Master, and so and... I'm, I, you know, I, I, I literally, it's like, I'm, I'm going to see Oz, all right? <laughs> and uh, the, the, the little map I get to... Uh, uh, their place in Santa Monica, right, like right on Ocean Boulevard, is like, oh wow, this is the Yellow Brick <laughs> Road, and then I get to the Emerald City, and um, so I go there and and I walk in the office and uh, through the offices, and then the office door opens, and there he is sitting on the couch, and that's him, that's Brian De Palma. I know exactly what he looks like. You know, I have a little cassette tape that I made. I mean, a, a video cassette tape called Mondo De Palma. That's like a collection of all of his interviews <laughs> on television that I've been building for years. And there he is. And I'd heard he's kind of a prickly guy, yeah. you know, not the you yeah. know, warmest fellow in the world. Uh, well, he ended up being very warm with me because, you know, I was in love with him, you know, and uh, he appreciated it. Amazing. And we had wonderful talks and, and a whole discussion and then an interesting thing happened. Um, they were like, so what are you thinking about doing next? And I'm like, well, well, no, no, no. I start kind of mentioning the Pulp Fiction idea, you know, but it's still in the embryonic stages. Yeah. And, um, and I realized 
there was an agenda to the meeting. Gail Ann Hurd wanted to produce my next movie. <laughs> and, and actually, finally, if Gail Ann Hurd wanted to produce my next movie, if she had never married De Palma, that could have been enough. Yeah. All right. Uh, I mean, she was, you know, she was, she was I, I had nothing but admiration for that lady. But the idea was to lure me into the situation with Brian. I'm not saying in a skullduggerous way. Sure. No, no, they were being very positive. They wanted to produce my film, uh, uh, my next movie. And, um, and Brian was like, yeah, well, you know, uh, you know, Gail has done, you know, at that time, the biggest movie, the most expensive movie ever made, you know, and also she had done Waterdance, which cost a million dollars. And, you know, and I could be the executive producer on the movie. What a mind trip. What a, like, to have your hero yeah. selling you mm -hmm. on his wife to yeah. produce your film. <laughs> I, I, it, it was a mind bending <laughs> experience. You know, in, in the Matrix when everything goes, wah, 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 wah. well, that was what was going on in my mind. But there also was this really kind of gratifying aspect. I had already made my deal with Jersey Films, Dan right. DeVito's company, to do Pulp Fiction. Right. So I didn't need them. Um, I, I didn't need a big name director to sign on as executive producer of my movie to get it done. I had Final Cut already. So there was something immensely gratifying about being actually even further along in my career and in my place than they even knew I was. Yeah, you had the most power in that room. <laughs> and it was, uh, 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 it was a very, it was a very gratifying, very lovely experience. And uh, everyone was all, all very friendly. And then later, because um, the movie, it had just played its first festival. I mean, they, it, you know, as far as they knew, I was just like straight out of film school or sure. something. But, you know, Months and months later, I've been on the film festival circuit, and then I was in the Toronto Film Festival, Reservoir Dogs, and he was there just hanging out. And then so we ended up hanging out at a party. And then we're talking and having a good time, and, and he, you know, he's referring to me like like he knows me. You know, he's having some argument with, like, your discussion with some young film students. Hey, Quentin, come over here for a second. Said, <laughs> Where would you be without those actors? You need those actors. Okay, I'll tell these kids that, you know. And all of a sudden, I'm a peer, and he knows me. And Please. it was just... It was just really wonderful. Um, as a fellow obsessive of De Palma, I appreciate that immensely. <laughs> um, the I, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, in, in reading about your films, just I always am fascinated by kind of alternate histories that that could have been written. Uh, because I, I I'm very uh, fascinated by stuff like that. Well, too. I don't even mean I'm not even talking like in glorious. I'm talking more about the casting kind of thing. Oh no, I know exactly oh, what okay, you mean. You know, Frank Sinatra playing Dirty Harry for Irving Kirshner. Because exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I mean, because I can't imagine anyone but David Carradine, of course, mm -hmm. in, in Kill Bill, but. The fact that Warren, who infamously, Warren Beatty, who infamously is tough to pin down for anybody. Yeah, yeah. I'm thrilled he actually directed a movie that we're eventually going to see. Apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but like uh, that one always intrigues me. Warren Beatty. There's folklore about Daniel Day-Lewis for Vincent Vega. Well, he was interested. He was interested in the part. Yeah. Um, I, well, I, well I, the Warren Beatty yeah. was a kind of an interesting thing because um, the Warren Beatty thing is interesting because uh, I've never published the Kill Bill script you know, in like book form. Yeah. And uh, that's going to happen coming up. I made a, a deal with a, a book company that finally actually published it coming up. 
And that uh, one in particular, or is it going to be all the works together? No, 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 no. It'll be that one. Amazing. You know, that one. You know, okay. uh, you know, uh, you know, Kill Bill is one one script. Nice. And um, uh, I mean, some of the other, some of them have gone out of print, and a lot of them you know, they picked up the rights to do them, but it's not all one thing together. Got it. Uh, who do you think I am? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 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 um, so Kill Bill's coming out, and I've made it a point that I want to. Um, for the most part, um, release of uh, the first draft. Um, because once I cast David Carradine, I did a lot of little rewrites, getting to know David to actually shift the character right. more into David's kind of sphere. And it was really interesting reading Kill Bill again, that very first draft, because that's the that's the Warren Beatty version. I'd be fascinated. You yeah. know, and you know, and he's you know, he's much more of a James Bond. Right type of character like James Bond as Blowfield <laughs> basically and uh, so uh, and you know that guy never really got betrayed and I have no problem with how uh, it all ended up um, working out and also you know there was this idea that um, David Carradine could hold on to this mysticism and I was a little worried that maybe Warren Beatty might look faintly ridiculous uh, to some degree or another in this. Uh, and actually the reason that I ended up casting David Carradine more than anything else as much as I was a big fan of his as, as an actor and the work he did in, as, as Kane in particular but in all kinds of movies. Um, Long Riders and a bunch of other movies. But um, it was his autobiography. He wrote one of my favorite uh, if not my favorite autobiography of, of an actor if not my favorite autobiography, frankly, uh, it's called Endless Highway. And he really had a, a Dickensian life. And he, and he's, he was a, David was a very, very good writer. He, he wrote a bit like Dickens. He wrote a bit like uh, Jack Kerouac and a whole lot like David Carradine. Right. <laughs> and I mean, the life really was, was, was a hell of a life. And it was a fascinating book. And in the course of reading the book, I was like, this guy would make a fantastic bill. So when it didn't work out between Warren, uh, I knew where to go as far as David was concerned. But nevertheless, reading that first, which I haven't done in a long time, reading that first draft of Kill Bill again, where it's just definitely the David Carradine version. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely the Warren Beatty version of Bill. That is interesting. Is, um, in your mind's eye, do you have a different version of, uh, obviously, Natural Born Killers, True Romance, were directed by other filmmakers. Um, is, does that gnaw at you that you never got a chance to do either of those on your own to interpret that as you would have... No, no, I would have, I would have, I, actually, oddly enough, in, in both cases, because uh, both of those movies were made uh, post-Reservoir Dogs. Uh, uh, you know, Tony was going to do True Romance, and he did True Romance, and I love the movie he made. I absolutely adore the movie he made. Uh, oddly enough, before Patricia Arquette, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee was offered the role of Alabama, and she turned it down. Oh, wow. Uh, she regrets it to this day. <laughs> she had a pretty good reason, though. She said she she felt she had played that character in Miami Blues, and she's not wrong. Which I yeah. think she said up until this moment was her favorite character. Yeah, she yeah, has yeah. A lot of yeah. Well, that's, yeah. that's a great, character. amazing film. Yeah. And frankly, to tell you the truth, way before I saw the movie, to some degree or another, I had read that book, Miami Blues, and there is a you know a link mm -hmm. between the Alabama character and her character in, in from the novel. Interesting. Just I didn't rip it off, but there was uh, yeah. I was I was definitely inspired to some degree. Yeah. So I was actually thought, wow, Jennifer Jason Lee's pretty smart. She actually kind of sees the uh, uh, the linkage there. Uh, but the thing is, um, you know, Tony had the piece, and his uh, producing partner came to me. You know, Quentin, you uh, um, 
you just said Reservoir Dogs, you know, we can now get the money to do like an $8 million version of, 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 of True Romance. Right. And you could, you could do it. You know, Tony wants to do it, absolutely. But he would step back and executive produce the movie if you wanted to do it. And, and this is before I wrote Pulp Fiction. And frankly, the producers that had Natural Born Killers offered me the same situation before they went to Oliver Stone. Hmm. And I refused both of them. And the reason I refused them was because both of those movies were written to be my first movie. And I already made my first movie with Reservoir Dogs. And it wasn't about going back in time to do something that I had written earlier. They were all written to be showy debuts. Yeah. Well, I did my showy debut. And now I had to do my second movie. And your second movie is not the same as your first movie. And your second movie is even more important than your first movie. And so I needed to sit down and start from scratch what my second movie would be. And that was Pulp Fiction. Um last thing for you because I think you're 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 uh, you're in the leading man. I, I think I think I think I think Kurt might be outside waiting for us. I'm not sure. But I do want to Snake Plissken. <laughs> Snake Plissken. You don't want to piss him off. Yeah, exactly. Um but I'm curious uh, You're a real ass. <laughs> <laughs> um, you've talked about a stage version of this yeah, of uh-huh. Hateful Eight. Um, have you thought about when you try to retain the cast? Have you thought about different casting variations, or have you gone that far in terms of what changes you'd make, if any, etc.? Um, <laughs> part of the reason I want to do it is to actually have other actors have a chance to play sure. my characters, to have them possibly live on in different guises. Okay, I keep saying that, and the actors from the movie don't want to hear that. And <laughs> no, this is mine. <laughs> about, well, we could all get together and do it. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And just, you know, I, but on the other hand, there is these, you know, I mean, it's like I'm, uh, uh, they're just, I'm speaking a different language. They just <laughs> refuse to acknowledge that I have ever said anything like that, you know, and give me the stink eye, um, of which I, I actually just take fondly. That means that they love the character and can't imagine anybody else playing their roles. Um, which, you know, good on that. <coughs> um, but, um, yeah, I have thought about how I would do it. And, uh, and I considered the idea of doing it, uh, you know, at one point I was like, well, I mean, if I actually were to um, do it first as a play... I mean, that would be a really interesting piece of original material to go to Broadway with. Not some revival or anything yeah, like yeah. that. Would be, that would be kind of something special. But I would, the mystery would not be an important element to me if I was doing it on the stage. Mm. And so the mystery is only going to work one time, and right. that would be on the film. Because the way I would do it, and again, talking a bit in code here, that's what I think. I haven't tried to do it yet, but my theory would be, theoretically, is it would never leave Minnie's haberdashery, and it would start with chapter five. Oh, interesting. So you would see the setup uh, of everything, and then it would just be the other character showing up two by two. Got it. Mm-hmm. Um I can't thank you enough. You, you, we, uh, I got a chance to do the uh, the press conference for you guys the other day, and I asked you, and you, you, you were a man of your word when you said you'd do the podcast. So, no, it was thank, my pleasure. Thank, you did such a good job, and I really appreciate the support you've given me. No, thanks, man. I'm, as, as you can tell, I'm a huge fan, and this is a hell of a piece of work. Uh, everybody should go check out The Hateful Eight. See it, if you can, the, uh, the full Roadshow edition. But regardless, I'm sure it's a good time at the movies. Um, Quentin, it's good to see you, man. My pleasure.
So gender fluidity, maybe you've heard of it before, but you don't really know what it means. I'm Deanna Chang, and every week on OMFG, my co-host Emily Foster and I talk to the youth of America to try and understand things like what's the big whoop about Snapchat and how one sets a thirst trap. On our first OMFG Investigates Howl special called Do Millennials Hate Being Straight, we learn about every shade of the LGBTQIA rainbow, and we even go to a pansexual party. Listen today on Howl Premium, and don't forget, you can get one month free if you go to howl.fm and sign up with the offer code OMFG. Hop. This has been a Wolf Pop production. Executive produced by Paul Shear, Adam Sachs, Chris Bannon, and Matt Gorley. For more information and content, visit wolfpop.com.